but as we, as we gather, we should always do so starting in prayer. So let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Lord God, Heavenly Father, you, you have caused all Scripture to be written. You have breathed through the men who have written this book across the generations, and we are so thankful for the revelation that you've given to us about yourself on the pages. We ask that you would guide us through this discussion this morning. We know that your presence is here among us, but we ask uh, for your guidance as we, as we dive into the Gospel of John. In Jesus' name, amen. So, my understanding is that we are going to be starting today at John chapter 4, verse 43. That's where I started to prep for, so that's where we're going to start. Um, and we'll, we'll go as far as we can get uh, today. But we want to take some time, because there's some cool stuff in the Gospel of John. So starting at verse 43 here, After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So I want to pause here for just a minute. Um, this, this little parenthetical statement in the Gospel of John here that talks about a prophet not having honor in his own hometown. Um, because... We sometimes hear that and we think very narrowly about the city of Nazareth, the place of Nazareth. The, the word that's used here for hometown uh, might also be translated as fatherland. It's patridi in the Greek. So it might also be trans- translated as that. And I just made a couple notes about some other places leading up to this in the Gospel of John, uh, remembering uh, that, that John assumes that we know a lot of things about Jesus already. This was the latest written gospel. This was a long time down the road in the 90s, probably, when it was written. Uh, And so if we look a little bit earlier, in John 2.16, Jesus identifies the temple as his father's house. Um, And then in 2.19, he equates that to himself, right? In 2.19, Jesus says this. He says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Um, But for now, it seems like in the Gospel of John, he's pointing towards Judea and Jerusalem. Uh, And and Origen, actually, one of the early church fathers, supports this. He talks about, he says, The country of the prophets, of course, was in Judea. And it is clear that the prophets had no honor among the Jews since they were stoned, sawn in two, tried, and put to death by the sword. Um, so as we hear that, as we hear this no honor in his own hometown, we, we might want to think a little bit more broadly of this um, than just the city of Nazareth, right? Just that little, that little map dot up in Galilee. Uh, and I know that might be different. That might not be something you've talked about before. Does anyone have any comments on that or question? No. All right. Very good. Well, there's your Greek for the day. Patridi, fatherland. Okay. So then we'll just move right along. The Galileans welcomed him, seeing all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. And that's going to come in here in just a couple of minutes as we go through this next section here. Because I think there's, there's a lot to unpack in Jesus' healing of the official's son. So we're going to read through that starting at verse 46, ending at verse 54. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, "'Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe.'" The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him his son was recovering. 
So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Um, so this is, I mean, this is a, a, there's a lot here. He's coming back to Cana, and this, this official comes from Capernaum, and that has led some across time to wonder, is there a similarity between this, or is this the same event recorded differently than the, as the healing of the centurion's servant, which we find in Matthew 8 and Luke 7? Um, and so they've gone back and forth about this, but I think in the end we can say these are two different events potentially, and there's five reasons, and these aren't, these aren't exclusively my reasons. I read people that are smarter than me to help me come to this conclusion. Um, but the place is different. In Matthew and Luke, the, the interchange takes place in Capernaum, here at Cana. Um, in in the Gospel of John, it's immediately after his return to Galilee, and in the other Gospel accounts, that healing of the centurion's sub, uh, servant is after some time. And in the two accounts here, it's the son. In the other account, it's the servant or the slave. Um, we know that's, that term, doulos, uh, in Greek means servant or slave. Uh, for um, there is kind of a weak faith versus strong faith type language, right? And we, we find the weak here in John, the strong in Matthew and Luke. Um, and here in John, Jesus doesn't go. He's like, I'm not going. Whereas in the other accounts, he offers to go to the person's house, to the, to the centurion's house. Um, so this is probably a different event. I mean, that's not the point of, of that's not the point of this story. So it's fun to have that conversation, but this, the center of the nugget of this story is not about whether or not it's the same account as in, as in um, Matthew 8 or Luke 7, but it's also fun to wrestle with those things and say, huh, this is interesting. Could this be the same story? I don't think so. I think this is a different event. Um, but let me know. We'll grab coffee and we'll talk about it one day. Um, so we've got that going on. So we're going we're to treat this as an independent event as Jesus comes back to Cana in Galilee. Um, so he's back here, and this is an interesting point. This man hears um, what's happened, and this kind of implies that maybe the, those servants at the wedding at Cana, remember, they're not supposed to tell anybody. Jesus turns the water into wine. He saves, he saves the wedding reception, and, but they're supposed to stay quiet about it, but we know typically people, I mean, we have trouble listening to God in all aspects of our life, even when he does something awesome, and he's like, please don't talk about this, and then, hey, guess what this guy did? Um, so it, it seems to imply maybe that the servants haven't been quiet, that they were like, you're never going to guess what happened. We were, we were serving at this wedding over here in Cana, and then telling that story, right? Because remember, the servants at that story were the only ones besides Mary and the disciples and Jesus that knew what happened. The master of the feast has no idea. He's just like, wait, why did you bring the good wine out at the end? This is not how this is supposed to work. And so it seems that, that he has heard this, and so he has come. And that ties a little bit in to what has just come before up here. Um, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem. So there's this seeing the things that Jesus is doing um, and attracting a lot of attention to him. And we see this throughout the gospel accounts. As Jesus is doing things and healing people, people are like, this guy is pretty cool. And they're bringing people to him to be healed and have demons cast out and all of that. Uh, a lot based on the miracles, the, the, the miraculous signs that he is performing. Um, but as we dive into this, he comes to him, he's like, hey, I need you to come down here and heal my son. He's at the point of death. My son is dying. As a parent, that's a pretty, like, that's a pretty significant event. Um, if you're a parent, I've never lost a child. I cannot imagine what that would be like to lose a child or to be standing here and going, like, I know you can heal my son. Please come do it. And then have that response to you. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not 
believe. Um, and you notice how he kind of steamrolls Jesus a little bit there in the Gospel of John. Jesus says that, and it's almost like he doesn't even acknowledge it. He's like, sure, come down before my child dies. It's not like there's, there's a very abrupt response to that, to which Jesus responds, go, your son will live. And this is, this is the fascinating part of me. The man believed. Um, it seems that there is a trust here in Jesus' word, in the word of Jesus. There's no evidence at this point. He can't know whether or not his son has been healed, but Jesus says, go, your son will live, and he, the man believed, and he goes on his way. And the reason that I bring that up to you today is because there's this, there's kind of a, a tension here that has been wrestled with that whether or not Jesus is rebuking this man and what's going on in this passage. But I want to call attention to the, we talked about it last week in the sermon, this idea of, of listening, right? Faith comes from hearing. The Word of God actually does things. Um, and sometimes we want signs. You know, you've probably been there in life where you've got a big decision to make and you're like, if you could just put it up in neon, God, that would be great. What am I supposed to do? Um, personally, I know that when my family was, was considering prayerfully whether or not coming to St. Louis was the, right, was the right thing to do, Jessica and I sure wanted a neon sign. <laughs> God, can you just tell us whether this will be right? Are we going to are we going to ruin our kids forever by, you know, uprooting them and moving them across the country? That didn't come. Um, but through God's word, through the counsel of pastors and things like that, he showed us that that was the right thing to do. There was no, no neon sign in the sky, but he opened doors. Uh, and a lot of that was through his word. And that was really important for us as we, as we came here. Um, and Augustine actually preached on this 1,500 years ago. And he had this to say. I don't agree 100% with his statement, but we'll unpack that in just a second. In his sermon, Augustine, on this passage, he says, So many of us have believed. What signs have we seen? Therefore, that which was done then in the gospel story pretends this which is happening now the fate of the Jews. And he's talking to something uh, in his time, right? The Jews were or are like the Galileans. We are like those Samaritans. We have heard the gospel. We have given assent to the gospel. We have believed in Christ through the gospel. We've seen no signs. We demand none. Um, I would like to disagree just a little bit with Augustine because the Galileans welcomed him. If we go back just a uh, couple of verses up here, it, in 45, it talks about the Galileans welcomed him uh, there. And so I don't completely agree with what Augustine's saying, but he's pointing out something that, that in the time since Jesus, Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and kind of that first Pentecost, there were, there were signs in, and things in that period of time, but it seems overwhelmingly like we, we live in a period where there's not these miraculous signs. Now, we can make an argument for us not just not recognizing miracles for what they are. That's another coffee shop conversation. Love to have it with you one time. But we, we live in a time where God has revealed himself to us in his word, and we can go to his word and hear all these wonderful things about his love for us, about that perfect law that he spoke for us and how it reminds us of our sinfulness, but also his love for us in Christ Jesus. And, and that comes through the word. Uh, and so to that, we come over here to my handy dandy book of Concord. Um, articles four and five in the Augsburg Confession are, article four is, is central, and then I'm going to tag in the first line of article five here. Furthermore, it is taught that we cannot obtain forgiveness of sin and righteousness before God through our merit, work, or satisfactions, but that we receive forgiveness of sin and become righteous before God out of grace for Christ's sake through faith. When we believe that Christ has suffered for us and that for his sake our sin is forgiven and righteousness and eternal life are given to us, for God will regard and reckon this faith as righteousness in his sight 
as St. Paul says in Romans 3, 21 to 26. And that's the part with, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then we break this up, but if you look at the first sentence of Article 5, which is concerning the office of preaching, it says, to obtain such faith, God instituted the office of preaching, giving the gospel and sacraments. The word of God does something, both the written word and the spoken word. And sometimes this is, I'm highlighting this because you guys know the emphasis, or if you've ever chatted with me, you know the emphasis I put on community and being actually together like this, like you guys are right now in Bible study, in corporate worship, in the coffee shop, or wherever you gather with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because God works through that. When he gathers us together and we hear the word proclaimed from the lectern, from the pulpit, when we pray together, when a brother or sister in Christ reminds you of the promises of God, when we hear those words spoken to us, it does something. And we, we get to do that in community with one another. And we, we shouldn't neglect that. We should always be gathering together. I know this is a little bit, I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but I want you guys to hear me say that as you're, as you're here gathered in this place. Um, across time, I've been told by people that I can be a Christian and never go to church. I can't restrict what God does, but I do know that God gave his gifts to the church. He gave his word and sacraments, the means of grace to the church. And so when we come together, when, when you come up to the rail and you receive Christ's true body and blood, you're participating, right? You are together with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're receiving the true body and blood of Jesus, having that foretaste of the feast to come. When you confess your sins and you hear the pastor speak those words of absolution. You hear those as if Christ himself is speaking. Um, and I don't know about you, and just pause there for a moment, but when it comes to that point, when you make a mistake, when you do something foolish, when you say something unkind, whatever it is, and then you're by yourself, I can know that God's forgiveness is real. I think I've said it in here before, the gulf between here and here is a long way. And there's a difference in knowing that our sins are forgiven and hearing those words spoken to us and knowing that those sins are forgiven. I really, like, I really, really, really want you to hear me on that. Um, because especially in, in the wake of all that's happened in the last few years, I think we have almost a new lease on what it means to be with one another. Um, and so, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, the other interesting thing about that is this is the word made flesh speaking the word of God. So it's actually the word proclaiming the word. And so don't hear me discounting the miraculous, miraculous acts of Jesus in creating faith. He is God. And so when he was walking around and he was doing these things, that was a part of it. And actually, uh, at the end of the Gospel of John, it talks about how these things are recorded, all these signs and wonders are recorded so that you might know just who Jesus is. And that is not just a really smart rabbi or Eastern guru walking around, but that he's actually the Son of God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Lutheran education was what the comment was for you guys on the radio. Lutheran education is a huge part of this. We gather together, our kids are formed and shaped in that uh, every day. And teachers, as the husband of a Lutheran school teacher, um, pour their hearts into that every day. Now, 
Here's, here's what I want, to, want you to hear me. Hear me saying, one, I'm a product of Lutheran education. My wife was a Lutheran school teacher. My boys are product of the Lutheran education system. This is the other thing that I want you to hear so much. As a parent, you are the number one influence in your child's life. A Lutheran school teacher, God can work through whatever means he wants, but this, I, I firmly believe this. As a parent, if you don't display the importance of faith to your kid, it doesn't matter if they're in a Lutheran school or wherever, it's, that's a, a barrier for them growing in their faith. Um, they know what's important to you. And so if, if you're, and I'm not condemning anyone, please don't hear me condemning anyone. I'm just, this is, this is something on my heart as a parent and a pastor, recognizing and a youth worker, recognizing how development takes place in our kids. If you farm out faith instruction to Lutheran schools, it doesn't matter how good those teachers are, there's a much higher chance that your child doesn't grow to, to have that same, and some of them do, right? But you are the number one influence. And so if your attitude about confirmation is like it's something I drop my kid off at and I don't need to have any part of that, and I don't ever talk about faith, I don't ever bring that up in relation to real life, your kids are going to recognize that. That's so important. Like, I, I love youth ministry, and that's one of the biggest factors, I think, for our kids as they come into adulthood, is they, they're watching mom and dad, and they're seeing how they interact with those things. Even their attitude towards going to church in the morning. When, and I know that it's a battle. I had two super active boys, and so, man, between the ages of, like, well, once they could crawl, really. It's not birth. Those first six months are, you know, besides the sleep. But there was years there where, I think back, we were part of a mission plant, and I have almost no idea what the sermons were about, because it was a little bit like WWE. Um, like, I, and I say that, I say that lovingly, loving my boys, but that was always, that was the center, like, being a part of that community and plugging them in and talking about faith and working it into conversations, even about just stuff in the world. And they see the importance that it bears to you. And why I say that is, I know that it's a struggle some mornings. If for, for those of you that have grandkids, you guys have already you know, been through the fire. For you guys, those of you guys that have young kids still, some mornings, I know the ride to church. I know what it's like. I've been there with Johnny and Noah when it's like, Brah! And then you pull in the parking lot and you're like, smiles on everybody. But it's so, it's so worth those struggles and those fights. Because if you say, I get to go to church, that's very different from saying, come on, we have to go to church. And we've all done it. <laughs> we gotta go to church. But just, like, that's, that's really on my heart. And I say that loving Lutheran education and knowing the firm foundation it gives our kids, but also knowing that if, if, if we as parents don't express the importance of that faith and actually live it, not just saying confirmation's really important, Sunday school's really important, but actually, and I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here because you guys are all here gathered in Bible study, but you're a captive audience. Um, but we have to do that. We have to do that. It's so important. Yes? On this text. Yeah. It says, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Those are plural. Mm -hmm. So he is, he's talking about Yes. But then when he says, Jesus answered, says, come down before my child dies, that's almost a confession of faith. He doesn't yeah. say he believes. But, right. But I mean, just the fact that he goes beyond what Jesus says. Yes. Yeah, it does. It expresses, so the comment was talking about how that's a plural, and maybe this is speaking to, to more than just that guy, and I would agree. There's He's not in a vacuum here. There's a group of people, but you're right. Actually, I, I typed that down in my notes here. There's a trust here. There's a faith in what Jesus can do. Um, and at this point in John's gospel, remember the, the slow reveal in John's gospel? So he might not fully understand. He probably doesn't fully understand like the reality of who Jesus is completely yet, this guy, but he knows that this that this Jesus character is something special. I'm going to grab a microphone real quick and come to you. And so, um, so we see that not only here, but in other places where, where people seem to, 
they come to Jesus for healing and they just know something special is going on with this guy, but they don't know the full depth of what it is. Yes. Well, as, as Bud was saying, um, that the study Bible does say that he was really speaking to the whole group, mm-hmm. speaking to um, the Galileans. But it's an unusual conversation in that this man is going to Jesus because he already believes that he has power. So the comment, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, is rather puzzling. Then the official says, sir, come down. He's more direct there. Yeah. And then he says, go, your son will live. He believed the word. And then he went on later and it was affirmed by the servant's message that, yes, indeed, he had been. Yeah. And it was at the same moment that he had talked to Jesus. So to me, isn't this really a passage about faith and grace alone in that he understood right. what was in not only the man's heart, but the people watching. Oh, yeah. And he knew he wouldn't discourage the man. He knew it. We don't. Right. And that, that's why when we're talking about Lutheran schools, it, it is not our natural inclination to trust in grace alone. We have to, we have to study this all the time. Yeah. And we adults have to do it. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, yeah, excellent. And to your point there, I think that's such a cool thing that at the very moment uh, that Jesus spoke those words, the son began to get better. Um, and he... he the faith, the faith that he had to have in that. And you're right. Sorry, to tag on to the end of your statement, we do have to work on that. And that's why coming together in community is important because we don't have grace on ourselves. We are our own worst critics. And so lived in a vacuum, and this is why I say it's important to come together to, to people that say, I don't have to go to church. Well, the means of grace are here, but also... When everything in life goes sideways, when you're by yourself and you're crying out, why God, he can speak to you. I, I will never restrict God. But when you're in regular fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ and gathering to hear his promises, then you're hearing that from outside yourself and you're not turning inward. Yes. This discussion makes me think of the fact that God's word is performative. Mm-hmm. Uh, Obviously, it was for the man whose son was ill, yeah. but also in the divine service when the mm-hmm. pastor, in the stead of Christ, pronounces yes. forgiveness. It's performative in that moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, when the word of God is shared in our families or wherever yeah. it is, it's real and alive in that moment. Yes, absolutely. That is that is 100% true. And that's the performative is... is is that that is when we say that the word of God actually does something, it does. It's living and active. It's performative, right? It's not, it's not just words on a page like, like you guys, I love J.R.R. Tolkien. I love The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Really fun stories. Great, great stuff in there. But it's just a story. And that's why a lot of times, actually, you'll hear me refer, when I'm referring to God's word and narrative, as the events, because I want us to know that they actually took place and that as we speak, the, as we speak about these things, there's something happening. The Holy Spirit is here among us, right? God himself is here working in and through these words. Yeah, good stuff. All right. Any other comments? Yes. I'm I'm wondering if that you the unless you see signs and wonders is that a generalized you in other words was he making a general statement we do that sometimes we say you should you know we say you but we mean yes. every person so, so was this way his way of testing this man so, th- well, this was, this was plural. So, uh, at seminary, if you're translating this for Dr. Lewis, he would want you to write all y'all. That's what he would want you to write on the translation. Um, so, that would have been in Dr. Lewis speak, unless all y'all see signs and wonders, all y'all will not believe. Um, coming from the South, that's just natural. Um, but, yeah, this is, this, is, this is cast out. There's, there's a grouping of people here. The Galileans have welcomed him. 
people are coming to Jesus. He is different. He's doing things that they haven't seen before. And so they're flocking to him. And that's where I talk about the gulf between knowing, oh, he healed somebody, and knowing what his true, like, who he is truly. That wasn't there yet. They're just looking at him going like, oh, man, he's healing people? This is awesome. We got to get close to this guy. Um, and God works through that, right? Like, that, God can work through that. Um, but yeah, he's addressing, this is the, the all y'all. Okay. Anything else? Before we move on to chapter five, Ooh, one more. I don't want to rush. It says, he himself believed, this is verse 53, mm-hmm. he himself believed and all his household. So, so he carried his faith to his family. Yes, and this is the only account in the Gospels of it being a whole family. We have some like in the book of Acts and beyond where we see households believing, uh, but this would be the only account in the Gospels where, uh, like, like you said, like the whole household believes, the family believes. Um, and that's pretty profound that this, this word of God spoken to heal his son brings that whole family to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I appreciate the translation, and this is the NIV, where it says the man took Jesus at his word. Yeah. And that is exactly what we need to do. This word is not, as you were speaking about, God's word is active and it does perform what it says. Yes. It's real. And this Bible is the only book that is God's word. Yes. And so the the comment there was that the man in NIV, it says, took Jesus at his word. Um, And that's what we need to do. Uh, And that actually gives us a little bit of kind of another little tangent here that's so important because the word of God is the word of God. I know that sounds kind of strange to say. Um, But what's been what's been written, what we believe is the word of God, we got to deal with all of it. We have to take Jesus at his word. We have to take God at his word, whether we like it or not. Um, and that's hard. And that's a struggle that, that we actually have struggled with for quite some time. And tomorrow is the 50th anniversary of the walkout at Concordia Seminary. Um, and I won't go into that, but there's a great new book published on the history of the walkout, you should read it. It's pretty awesome. Um, but a, a major problem there was the inerrancy of Scripture. Making the move from the Bible is the Word of God and taking God at His Word to the Bible contains the Word of God. And that's a really long distance because then suddenly I become the editor-in-chief and have to say, well, you know, I like what Jesus said here or I like what it says over here, but this part I don't really like, so we're going to apply some, you know, Aristotelian logic and try to reason our way out of this one or say why this might have been added or maybe was mistranslated or mistranscribed across time. That's a big deal because there's stuff in here that even pastors don't like to have to wrestle with, but we got to wrestle with it anyways. All of it, every last word, and we have to take him at his word and say, well, if that's what he says, that's what it is. Good comment. And he keeps his promises, which is really good because he's never broken a promise, which is pretty good for you and I, uh, especially as we look toward his return and the new heaven and new earth and what is to come. Those promises of what is to come is pretty amazing. And we don't have to wonder, will that be true? Because his word is always true. He's never broken his word. Thank you. I see any other hands out there? No? All right. We're going to dive into chapter 5. Here we are. The healing at the pool on the Sabbath. So we're going to go ahead and read through this, and we'll start unpacking it. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So we're heading back the other way. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. 
In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is a Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man, said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. There's a whole lot in those 17 verses, you guys. So the, the healing of the, the man here at the pool on the Sabbath. Um, so the timing here is, is significant because he heals on the Sabbath, right? There's a, there is a theological significance for this. This is the first conflict with the religious leaders listed in the Gospel of John. But not only is the Sabbath day significant because they had a conflict, because we knew this was coming, Right? During festivals, during feasts and things like that, the Jewish people are recollecting the goodness of God, his redemptive, his rescuing work in Israel's past, and they're also expressing hope uh, that God is going to come back, right? Here in the commentary, Weinrich writes this, during the festivals, the people of God recollected, people of Israel recollected God's works of redemption in the past, and expressed their hope and prayer that God would continue to bless it with his presence and favor. Um, so there's a pretty, it's a pretty big deal that this is happening right here. Um, and just, just for some symbolism also, the sheep gate, this is the first and the last part of the wall that Nehemiah, in Nehemiah, where it's it is constructed, right? So when they come back, when the Persians send them back from exile, they reconstruct the wall. This is the first and the last place that construction takes place. And the sheep gate is also the place where the sacrificial animals would enter in. So that's where, that's where the sacrificial animals come in, right here at the sheep gate. So there's a lot going on. Also, the guy's 38 years old. So in Bible times, that's pretty old. I mean, not in early like Methuselah times, but kind of the, you know, antiquity, that's a pretty solid age, which makes me feel super old, even though I'm not. But to think that 38, that's a long, I mean, that's a pretty long life, right? Well, is there something else from Israel's history that we remember that makes that 38-year mark significant? Let me give you just a second. All right, so if we, if we go back to Deuteronomy, when the people were led out of Egypt by Moses, they cross the Red Sea, they go to Sinai, they make their way across. They get to the edge of the Promised Land. They send spies in. Twelve of them, twelve spies come out, and they're like, man, this land is really good, but there's no way there's no way we can take this land, except for two of them, Caleb and Joshua. They're like, no, 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 God said we've got it. He's going to do it for us, right? And they don't, they don't say we're going to do it. They say God is going to do it. They give the glory to God. And only two of the 12 that trust, Caleb and Joshua. And then 38 more years of wilderness wandering, right? Until, until all from that generation have passed away. So there's, there's a lot going on here that, that's, that we can see some symbolism from, even from going in the water. Jesus uses this word, rise up, 
Um, and we know that in baptism, we are drowned in the waters of baptism, right? The old Adam is drowned, and we are raised to new life in baptism. And there's, there's all kinds of significance in connecting it to these different works of Jesus that he has given us. <clears throat> Pardon my voice. I've got a new asthma medication, and it messes with my vocal cords. <clears throat> there we go. That's a little better. Slightly. But one thing that I think is out of this is really important, I'll come to you in just a minute, Jan, that I really, I want to highlight about this, and this is something that we know, but I, we need to be reminded of this in our walk as Christians. When we get to verse 5, and the Jews come to this man who's been healed, did they express any concern for the man? There's zero concern for this guy. Their one concern, their sole concern, is that he was healed on the Sabbath. How dare you? How dare you heal on the Sabbath? And I, I bring that up because at this time, right, the, Pharisee, the Pharisaic sect rises somewhere in the 200 years before Jesus, and they are they're the guardians of culture. They see the Hellenistic influence from Greece. They see the Roman influence as they're under these Roman occupation. And they, they do not want that influence to infect their religion, Judaism. This is a time period where they come to be called the Jewish people. Um, and I bring that up because they are very much, they, their goal is very much a temporal, earthly, make Israel great again drive. That's what they want to do. And what they have done is they have generated lots and lots of rules and lots and lots of laws to build fences, is what they would call it, around the laws of God. And so in relation to the Sabbath, I can't remember the exact number, but they had generated, I guess, 30, I think it was 38 or 39 categories of work. Somewhere in the high 30s, was numbers of categories of work. So they could say, this counts as work, that doesn't. This counts as work, that doesn't. Um, and so what they had done was taken this beautiful law about remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy a gift that God gave us to, to, to rest in his word and his promises, to come together and hear those things. And they had turned it into an oppressive law. And to be fair, this was a command in the Old Testament. I'm not saying that they did, this didn't grow out of thin air. If you, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll find a story in there, an event where a man is collecting sticks for firewood on the Sabbath day and, and he's stoned to death. It is a serious thing, keeping the Sabbath day. It's not a suggestion, even for us, right? <laughs> Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy is not just a, you know, if you're not too busy, remember the Sabbath day. It's a, this is a part of our walk of faith. But they had turned it into an oppressive law. And so, because they want to make sure that nothing happens to this and everything is done in accordance with this, there's no care or concern for the fact that a guy that's been in this condition for 38 years is suddenly walking around with his mat. They just look at him and they're like, oh my gosh, this happened on the Sabbath. We're going to get the guy that did this. And, and do not hear me saying that the Sabbath is bad. Sabbath is good. I hope you're hearing that from me. But what I'm saying is, is, in our walk of faith as Christians, we need to be very careful that we don't do something similar and take the good things of God and turn them into oppressive laws. The Word of God is all the Word of God, and we have to deal with what He says. The things that He's given us, the, 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 all of the commands, we have to deal with all of that. But we should know our lane and stay in it and let God be God and let us be his creatures so that 
when, when something miraculous like this happens, we don't go, oh my gosh, it was the Sabbath. Go get him. We can say, all right, that's different. What happened there? And not just in relation to the Sabbath, I think in all aspects of our walk of faith, we need to let God be God and go to his word and see what he has to say about it before we start building fences around things. Because when we do that, we mess up the creator-creature relationship. Verse 14, uh, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. I have heard that taught as uh, evidence that specific sin can cause physical ailment. Would you please comment on that? <laughs> that specific sin can cause physical ailment. Um, I mean, to one extent, absolutely. absolutely the, the, someone that struggles with the sin of addiction... I mean, that leads to physical ailment, absolutely. Um, there are sins that we engage in as people that affect our body. Um, all of it affects our soul and our heart and our faith. Um, and so, there, I mean, absolutely. The, the choices we make to turn from God and engage in sinful activity actually do have fallout. And sometimes it's easy to see. The person that struggles with a heroin addiction it's easy to see track marks on their arm. They also know that it's bad. As the fire department, we engage with a lot of people that struggle with addiction, and they know it's bad. It's out there in the open. And it's, all, it's actually almost easier to talk to them about it because they will acknowledge this is a bad thing. Sometimes what can be more dangerous and more harmful is the sin that becomes culturally acceptable, whether it's within or out inside or outside the walls of a community of faith that we say, ah, you know, it's all good. This passage right here, so I think, I think when I was reading this, specifically the sin no more, coming to faith in Christ, when he plants faith in our hearts, there's a change in us. He, he raises us from death to life. He enables us to repent. Sometimes we always, we, Sometimes in our culture, we view repentance as something that originates within me. But as he plants faith, and we repent, and we turn from those sinful ways, there's actually a change in us. This is not a pursuit of salvation. Salvation was won for us. But as we believe in Jesus, as we grow in faith, and we recognize what he's done for us and who we are, there's a change. There should be a change in the way our lives look. If, if, if someone that doesn't know Jesus comes and gets baptized, that baptism is valid. But if that, life, if that life looks the same as the world around them and it doesn't look any different, we really have to work as brothers and sisters in Christ to have conversation with that person. Again, not pursuing salvation, but understanding that this faith that's been planted in your heart that has been put there by the power of the Holy Spirit changes you. And I love this statement because Jesus cared for him both as a creature in this realm, but also as a creature in the next. Not only now you can walk, but also sin no more. Um, we're never going to be able to do that perfectly, right? But there's a difference between embracing sin and struggling with it. Chapter 9 is coming with the man born blind, and he, Jesus says exactly the opposite. What's that? Do you want to, can you read that for me? No, I'm not there. Oh, gotcha. He says, who sinned? And so, and Jesus' response to that is, either one. Right. So, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying that this man was paralyzed because he sinned. So is that what you were asking? Oh, sorry, I was misunderstanding what you were saying. Yeah, I, no, his crippling, that's a part of living in a sin-sick and dying world, right? There, there is a reality that we live in. I'm, thank you for clarifying that because I went a whole different direction. 
Yeah, this guy is not crippled because him or somebody, because if you, if you, if you go down that route, that's what prosperity gospel is, right? If you do by, right by God, he's going to bless you, your descendants type thing like that. And so if you look at this and say, this guy was paralyzed because something he or his ancestors did, no. He's paralyzed because we live in a sin-sick and dying world, and until Jesus comes back, we're going to have to deal with things like being paralyzed and cancer and conflict in families and all of that stuff. So yeah, not, not a result. I was, sorry, I was looking more at the, his command to go and sin no more. He's, he's, a poor, he's a poor, miserable sinner, just like you and me. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and thank you, bud, for clarifying, because I, I, uh, I definitely don't want you to leave thinking that. Uh... <laughs> but that being said, I guess that clarifies it. Yes, sir. If we go back to verse 6 and the question that Jesus asked the man, this translation says, do you want to get well? I believe it's better translated, do you want to be whole? Yes. So it wasn't just physical healing, but spiritual healing that Jesus was offering him. Yes, thank you. Thank you for bringing that up, that the Greek word that's there does point to a wholeness, a completeness. And so that's that not just, not just healing his legs to walk, but also healing his soul, forgiving sin. Oh, sorry. Getting back to what you said about the keeping the Sabbath, I have a note in my Bible that uh, it was important not to violate the Sabbath because their belief was that if everybody kept the Sabbath, the Messiah would come. So it was tied into their belief in the yeah, Messiah. Yeah, that's right, absolutely. And actually, I believe, and I believe there was even a Jewish saying at the time that if everyone kept the Sabbath two days in a row, Jesus would come now. Or I mean, not Jesus, but like the Messiah would come now. And so there was, I mean, there, like I said, I'm not condemning the Pharisees for wanting to keep the Sabbath. That's not what I'm at all. It's good to keep the Sabbath. But what they had done was, instead of making it a good gift of God, they had turned it into an oppressive thing, a work where you need to do this. I mean, that's why the, that's why the synagogues are where they're at, because if you walk 2,000 steps, you work. If you walk 1,999 steps, it's not considered work. And so even the geographic location of synagogues was based on these rules um, that are found nowhere in the Word of God. This is in rabbinic tradition and, and things like that. And so, so yeah, this, the Sabbath is a gift from God, not, not a work. It's, it is Sabbath rest, not Sabbath work, not check all the boxes to make sure I didn't turn the light switch on and things like that. That's not what this is about. Um, and because we're, we're running short on time, I just want to come back to your earlier question so that we're really clear. Now that we've got clarified, so I'm not talking past. This man's sin did not cause his crippling, right? That's just an effect of living in this world. It happens. Now there are sins that we can engage in during our lives, that can cause us harm, right? Now, that's the difference between original and actual sin, though, right? The original sin is a sin we're born with. We're all broken. You're sinful by nature. But then there's actual sin, sins of commission, stuff we do that we shouldn't, and sins of omission, stuff that we don't do that we should. And when we engage in sinful behavior, there actually is fallout from that, both physically and spiritually. Uh, But this man's not paralyzed because he just because of original sin. That's just an effect of living in a sin-sick and dying world. Um, So, thank you for that. All right. Any last comments? Yes. Got a microphone coming your way. It seems like the uh, Jewish uh, hierarchy took the attitude that uh, it's negative they address things not to do on the Sabbath, yeah. not what they should be doing to keep it holy. Right. So, so they, yeah, they're, clear, they're thoroughly works-oriented. And we see this in other interactions with them and Jesus. 
when actually when Jesus, when they ask him about divorce, you can see very much that their approach to him is, so give us a list of reasons. Why is it, when is it okay to divorce? And Jesus is like, you don't get it. God's desire is never for divorce. Um, and that's a much larger conversation. But their approach to that conversation is, what are the, th- like, give me the permission list, right? What are the things I can do? Because they want to make, they want these things to be a work. They want to have a checklist that says, I did all these things. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I did all these things because you couldn't. All right. Any last closing comments? All right. It's good to be here with you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for the questions. Thank you for the clarification again, but so that we didn't leave out of here thinking something sideways. That's what you should do if you hear a pastor saying something and you're like, that sounds weird. Why did he say that? You should call him out. And I'll be thankful so that I don't leave you guys feeling like, oh man, that doesn't sound like something Jesus would say. (laughs) Blessings on your week, you guys.